Welcome to This Wild Life, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from around the world. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Hello and welcome to This Wildlife Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Amy Turner, and today I am so excited to do something we've never done before, and that is our first double guest podcast. Joining me today, I have the delightful Vera Castro and Sam Turley from Imeri Rhino and Wildlife Conservation. To be more specific, Imeri is a conservancy located in Zimbabwe dedicated to the conservation and welfare of wildlife. And they have a specific focus on the protection and breeding of the critically endangered black and white rhinos. Now, today is one of those days where if I'm not careful, I will just talk for hours and hours with these guys about all things conservation. But it really isn't my fault because they're both complete fonts of knowledge and will be sharing, hopefully, what it's like to work at Imeri, an organisation where they seem to have found an amazing winning method to balance conservation, community involvement and ecotourism. In terms of their backgrounds, Vera is a conservation biologist from Portugal and Sam is a zoologist from the UK. Both have very interesting stories to tell and today we'll be hearing all about their different paths into conservation. So because we have so much to talk about and without further delay, let's get into it. Vera, Sam, thank you so much for taking time out today to to join us. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's fabulous to have you on here. Now, for everyone listening at home, to paint a little bit of a picture, you guys are calling from Zimbabwe at yeah. the moment. Yeah, no, we're, right? we're based on Imeria and that's where we're calling from. Normally, we have quite bad signal, no, but it yeah. seems to be okay. So fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll hang on in there. And em- embarrassingly, I actually think it's my internet that's worse than yours and and I'm in the UK so that doesn't really make much make much sense (laughs) well it happens normally it's us it's really bad here Mm. Mm, well well let's see how it goes now another thing to paint the picture for our listeners at home as a bit of a background I always try to do trial calls with any of our guests to check internet connections and, and all of that well, a few minutes before the trial call with, with Vera and Sam, Sam quickly messaged me saying, you know, I might be a few minutes late. And it was because they'd just seen a Cape clawless otter pretty much just outside of, of, of their accommodation. Guys, have, have you seen him again recently? Um, we, haven't, we haven't actually seen him since, <laughs> since that, that time that I had to, had to delay the, the call with you. But... Um... Yeah, but he's normally normally around this dam, but no, I haven't seen him since then. It so. has been really cold for the past two days. Yeah, no, we have had a cold front so coming through. So maybe the auto decided to stay in bed like we should have. <laughs> <laughs> 
There we go. I'm off on an otter tangent already. <laughs> so so let's get into it. Vera, perhaps you could tell us a little bit how you got into conservation and, and ended up at the beautiful Imiri. Um, I'm going to resume my story, otherwise I'll be here for half an hour. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> I think like oh, I all, all the 90s kids, Lion King was a big one on my life. Um, so I, Lion King, I watched it. I used to watch it like three times a day until I decided like, yeah, I need to be in Africa. I need to see with my eyes what is the wildlife in Africa. So my grandfather took me in 2008 for my 18th birthday. And I it was the best trip of my life. And when we went back to Portugal, I did my biology degree. Wow. I worked as a biologist. Um, I did some um, Eurasian badger research. And actually, my teacher from university came to me and said, Vera, you know your place is in Africa. You now have an opportunity to go. Just go. And I was like, you're right. So I did my... I did. I went to Africa in 2015 to do my Fagaza field guide course. I absolutely loved it. I thought I was going to, only going to stay for three months there, five years after I'm still here. I did my trail guide course, my marine guide course, and I got a job in South Africa as a field guide. And I worked in South Africa for two years. And then, of course, field guiding is amazing. And for all people that are listening to us and been in the safari, like we can actually change people's lives with only the knowledge that the safari guide has. But I wanted to be more um, hands-on conservation, if this makes sense. Like, I wanted to be on in the front line. Um, I met Sam, which was a big step. It's a, a big part of the story. <laughs> yeah. the story. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we actually worked together. And then we decided, okay, let's go and try to search for some conservation jobs and we got the job at Aimiri and I, I remember when Riley told us to come, I didn't know, like, it didn't seem like it was real, if this makes sense. It seemed like it was all like a dream and I was going to wake up. But no, we've been at Aimiri for two and a half years and we love it. Love it, love it, love it. Every day is a completely different day. And it, yeah, it is pure conservation here. Oh, well, it certainly sounds like an amazing place to be. And and Sam, tell us about your background and, and how you got into this line of work. I think as a as a child growing up, there wasn't a single um, event, really. I was always just fascinated by wildlife, um, you know, whether it was wildlife from the Americas or from Asia or Australia, whatever. I was just obsessed with books, um, you know, flicking through all these animal books and then and then that that kind of followed me out into into British wildlife, which I'm fascinated by. I used to catch frogs and, and butterflies and you know all that kind of stuff, whatever I could find. Um, and then and then from there, so mine's not. I'm not going to have many dates here because I'm terrible with dates. <laughs> Vera's incredible, and I'm terrible. Um, from from there, I I basically the natural progression was to study zoology. Um, and I studied zoology without a career in mind. You know, a lot of a lot of the guys studying were going on to be vets or um, wildlife nurses, or you know, they had an idea of, of something they wanted to do. And at, at that stage, I really, I really didn't know. I just knew I was fascinated by wildlife, and I knew that I wanted to 
follow that and, and nurture that fascination into hopefully something more. Um, so, so from there and, and during university, I did a placement in South Africa in Durban um, on the Sharks board there, um, which was fascinating, real eye opener. Um, and you know, I then I then feel like my love of the whole continent kind of stemmed from that that one trip. I was there for a couple of months um, and just loved every minute of it. Mm. Um, I was then back uh, back and forth from the UK for a while. And I was actually stu- I was actually working um, in a marketing job in London of all places. No, um, at a desk, completely out, exactly where I should not be. Um, and I did that for about a year, but that that gave me the time and 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 a bit of money to decide what I wanted to do, um, which was when I found the same course that Vera was talking about in South Africa, and that's where we we met. And then you know the, the end of that story is the same. We then went on to to Imeri. Um, which which we absolutely love, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Oh, well, it's yet another case of being bitten by the bug of, of this amazing, amazing continent. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, it's a special place. And it's it's really difficult sometimes going back home and you don't feel like home. Mm. It is like home is now Africa. Yeah. It makes any sense. Like, yeah. you go back to Portugal, UK, and you don't feel like home, and you come back to Africa, and you already feel home. Mm. Awesome. So so that's your story. Now, let's get on to the other fascinating story of Imeri. Um, yeah, perhaps we could kind of learn a little bit about that. Um, so it is a fascinating story because... This all started in the 1950s. And so Norman Travers, he was from UK. And he came to Amiri, or came to Zimbabwe just to, to look for a life-changing uh, work. And he fell in love with the country. He fell in love with the wildlife, people, everything. And he started a little farm of maize, um, especially tobacco. Tobacco is a big thing in Zimbabwe. Um, but yeah, so he started um, Imiri as a t- as a tobacco farm, not related to wildlife, but still he had this need, this urge to conserve species, and he decided mm-hmm. to do a little game park um, with only antelopes. So he started bringing like Noah to his ark. He started bringing like couples, uh, like two impala, two nyala, two kudu, <laughs> and he formed this like beautiful heaven for antelopes and bear in mind that conservation was not it is a word it was a word in the 1950s to the 70s but no one used it because everything was balanced if this make like it if there was poaching was in small scale if there was hunting it was a small scale so everything was balanced but he still wanted to conserve species and because he's amazing job with the genetics of the antelope at Timiri. He was actually considered one of the pioneers of conservation in Zimbabwe. So in the 1980s, Zimbabwe went through a horrible poaching wave and the black rhino populations went from 10,000 to only 1,000 black rhinos. And they found 250 babies in the national parks. Wow. So they decided that they needed to create this inten- intensive protective zones okay. to grab those babies and put them on the intensive protective zones. And Imiri was one of them. And in um, the 1984, if I'm not mistaken, 
um, Emiri received um, seven babies. And that this how the heart of Emiri started with those seven babies. One of them apparently didn't even have ears wow. because it was such a long time without the mummy that um, the hyenas tried chewing the, yeah. the ears. And that's how the heart of Emiri. So Norman then thought, now I have the opportunity to see this rhinos grow in my property and then mate them and release them back to the wild. So to the date, Emiri released um, 13 black rhinos back to the wild. And of those 13, it became 27 because either the moms or the females had coughs or the males produce a new generation. Um, then the sad part is of those 27, apparently there's only two alive. And Riley always says to us that that's why one of the reasons his grandfather was heartbroken is because, you know, that all his life he, he, he was trying to save these babies and he saw them growing and then he would release them and then someone would call him like your rhino is dead. Um, then in 2007, um, Emiri suffered a really wow. bad incident, a poaching incident. And they, the poachers came in, they made um, a lot of people hostage and they killed the breeding herds, the adults, the adults, black rhinos from Emiri, they killed in mm -hmm. front of the handlers. So that night, Emiri lost three lives, actually say four lives, because one of the females was heavily pregnant. She was uh, 13 months pregnant and the gestation period is 15. So she was about to drop a baby. Um, so a lot of, uh, all the Travers family thought that that would be the end. Like, how can we continue to do this if there's still bad people in the world that come here and kill our babies, our, our life? Um, but of those that incidents, there was four survivors, and we are proud to mm. say that of those four survivors, Emiri now had three births since 2007. So, yeah, we're here for the last birth, uh, little Kanye, and he is just happiness. We actually, this morning, was we were with the baby. He's now uh, 10 months old, yeah. um, and he's just pure happiness. Just there, running around, always with mom. Now it's just yeah. like it is the reward part of this job. Is like, of course, we are in a war with poaching, but seeing this baby rhino just gives you hope. Mm. Well, what what a beautiful, but but also very tragic story of Imiri, and it goes without saying that Imiri is a brilliant showcase of, of never giving up on on these animals and. I think, yeah, obviously the reward of this is is the rhino um, babies and the young ones. Um, yeah, it's a complete marker of success, and uh, and it's and it really is the light very much needed. At, and at and this I time. think people nowadays need good news, and yeah, so good news and to and we need hope yeah. to save these animals. We need hope and we need to be positive. Yeah. So, so moving on to Imiri more specifically and the work you do, obviously you've got a black rhino breeding program, but if that wasn't enough, a huge part of the whole operation is involving the local people and also ecotourism. So could you tell us more about Imiri and, and your goals? Yeah, um, um, so 
So Imeri is a small conservancy, about four and a half thousand hectares. Um, so it's and it's just southeast, about an hour and a half drive southeast of Harare um, in Zimbabwe. Um, and and what we do really, our primary focus is the protection and breeding of the critically endangered black rhino. Um, and and that black rhino being uh, being a key species, a flagship species, that umbrella of protection spreads across the whole property, you know, across the whole of Imeri. So by protecting those black rhino, we also protect everything from from the birds to the, the bees to the, you know, all the insects, the fish, the otters I was so lucky to see. You know, that every every other species on the property is protected because of that, <laughs> that those black rhino, protecting those black rhino um, and, and, and keeping them here and breeding them. So so the ultimate goal for the project is to repopulate areas of Zimbabwe and hopefully Africa with black rhino. Um, and if it gets to that stage, potentially white rhino and whatever other wildlife we have. I mean, we sent um, we sent some warthog and, and zebra up to Congo. Um, so it, it's about keeping this this little hub of conservation alive and hopefully repopulating different wildlife areas um, within Zimbabwe and, and the wider Africa. Um, and and we the way we do that is through um, a three pillar conservation model or strategy. Um, so our three pillars are wildlife, um, community, and ecotourism. So I think we'll we'll go into more of that as we go along. But we believe that if you take one of those pillars out, then the whole system will collapse. So so the the wildlife and community can't survive without the tourism, um, just as the community can't survive without the wildlife and tourism. So those three pillars all work together in a holistic way to um, to reach our ultimate goal. Um, which is is the the repopulation of black rhino. Well, what a mission you're on, and and any ideas about how many black rhino we we have left? Um, I th- I think it's around. I mean, the numbers wherever I read numbers, it seems to change. But I think it's around four and a half thousand um, left. I think that that's it in the world, you know, including zoos. Um, so, so there really there really isn't much at all. In Zimbabwe, it's nothing now. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure. The Zimbabwe numbers, but it's it's low. Yeah, it's dangerously low. Mm. Well, we will get back onto the rhino breeding program and the other pillars of your work in a minute. Mm. But firstly, you're a private conservancy and and slightly smaller too than the yeah. big national parks. And in pockets around the outside, there is urbanisation in places, which is obviously very typical of an increasing global population. So what is the importance and, and roles of conservancies that are slightly smaller, um, like, like Imeri? Um, personally, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, I think it really is critical, not, not only for the genetic side. So in terms of, in terms of the wildlife on Imeri, the genetics is, is unique. You know, we, we've got this little pocket, um, this little oasis of wildlife with, with no other areas around. So, so this genetic is really quite unique to this area and those animals have adapted to this area. Um, I think then as well, being, being a small conservancy, there's less, you know, there's less stakeholders. So to make, to make effective decisions on the ground, it, they can be done quickly and they can, they can be done effectively. And, and that's for the greater good of the wildlife. Um, and, and also the owners, the Travers family, they still live on the property. Um, Riley's out every day. 
you know, the, uh, Judy's out every day. All the guys are out and they're seeing everything that's going on in the conservancy. And I think that, that's the benefit from these smaller, these smaller areas as well. Um, and then also a species like black rhino is so tricky to try and research. You know, you've got, they're, they're highly aggressive um, and thick bush animals. So to try and reach them on foot and to get reliable, accurate data is almost impossible. Um, and and these, these smaller areas like ours, um, mm. we can get close to them and we can observe them. I mean, I mean the calf um, Kenya that Rue was talking about that's, that's 10, 10 months old, he, he approached within about a metre of me today, uh, maybe even less. And, and you can get accurate, accurate research data, which can hopefully then go on to, to um, help better protect the species on the whole. And then the final, the final point, which I think may, may be the biggest, is I, I mentioned that three-pillar conservation model and the whole holistic approach. I, I believe, and the Travis family believe, that that is a, a real blueprint for conservation that could be replicated in other areas. Of course, every area is different. They have their different problems and, and different challenges they face. But I, I strongly believe that this blueprint of, of three-pillar conservation can be used in different areas to protect whatever species is, is trying to be protected. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think it's critical, these small areas. I really do. Um, and then the other thing is this small area, it's still a family-run conserv conservancy. Yeah. So you have three sections. You have the farm, the lodge, and the main section. And each section is run by one of Norman Travers' grandsons that still have this care about conservation and still want to work for a better, better future. Well, it, it's definitely unique. And I think the story of Imeri very much captures the imagination and I'm sure it captures the hearts of, of everyone that visits. Now, my next question, and despite this being obvious for some, <laughs> to others it might not be. So rhino breeding programs, what exactly does this entail? Is there a lot of interference from humans or is it just a case yeah. of putting lots of rhino together in a good good area you know what what actually is this um i think i think the key to it is is preserving a, a natural haven or you know a, a, a perfect natural habitat for these animals to be happy you know number one happy have, have enough food be protected um and then and then the breeding will take place it's not um i know there may be some confusion some people think it's forced you I don't know, you put a male in with a female or whatever. So our rhino are completely roaming freely. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, we've got males in the same areas as females and, and fingers crossed, they, they breed and produce babies, which they have been doing recently, which is really encouraging. Um, but no, it's, it's a completely natural process here. Okay. And, and in terms of the breeding program, it has been really successful, hasn't it? So, so tell us about that. I think I'll pass Vera onto this one because she's the date expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like I mentioned before, Imiri um, started with a black rhino breeding project in 1984 again. And so they had 13 black rhinos that were born here and they were re relocated back to the wild. There were some that's from that seven that came here that were back to the wild as well. Mm -hmm. But then after the poaching incident, we had 
the first rhino being born was in 2016. Mm -hmm. Then we had another one in 2000 and no, first one in 2014, second one 2016, <laughs> and the last one 2019. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they all have the same dad, Gomo. Uh, it's our big black um, black rhino bull. And what happened was we uh, just it's easier if I explain. So one of our females, when she was about to give birth, so they go through a lot of hormones and stress. Yeah. She actually broke the fence right. and she went to the community. <laughs> okay. So around like 4 a.m. when uh, we received the call that she was out and she had a baby. Oh, wow. So, so everyone was looking for her and the easiest way to bring her back into the game reserve was to cut the fence. And when we uh, push her back to the reserve, it was on a smaller area that we have and it's a completely wild area no one farmed there before mm. and she was so happy that we just let her being there mm. um and then uh after gomo our black rhino bull mated with the female this side we decided to put him with the other female that had the baby um and then what what we ended is with two females this side with no uh with no male yeah. So last year in September, we received a rhino from Victoria Falls, a male. He was in really uh, bad condition and because he was in an area with another bull and the bull, the other bull was older. So he was just keep fighting him and pushing him away. And bear in mind, we're going through a huge drought in Zimbabwe. It's really bad, especially in the Victoria Falls area. Like the browse is really bad. So when he came here, he was in a really bad um, stage and he's now way better. And the uh, goal for him is to mate with those two females and bring completely new genetics for um, Aimiri. And what we want in the future is those babies mm -hmm. to be released in an area of Zimbabwe where they will be free from poaching, hopefully. We will bring more genetics to the country that is much needed yeah mm. absolutely and, uh, sorry i was just going to say as well vera didn't mention the newest arrival i was actually wondering when you you know you drop that lovely bit of news she, when's she gonna <laughs> is she building up <laughs> um, but no, the, the most exciting news of 2020 i think um we've got a brand new white rhino baby so so she's almost a week now a week old um and yeah she's it's just a such a ray of hope in in you know these these quite oh, tough times you. for everyone so it's yeah it's incredible um and that's our latest success I'm, this new baby. sorry yeah i was just so focused on the black rhino, <laughs> white rhinos i completely forgot we have four white rhinos yeah. now yeah um and well, we were watching her this morning and she is just amazing we're running around mom and then smashing a bush then got a fright and run back to the mom mm. <laughs> it's so brilliant yeah oh like such a success for for Imiri mm. so another focus of Imiri lies with the community and it's fair to say Imiri is completely intertwined with the local people in a massive way so perhaps we could touch on this now yeah um so like you say, there's a lot of different layers to to our approach. Um, but I think in general, the, the community engagement, um, it's, 
it's mostly about education. So, so we need we need people to understand the value of wildlife, um, because in a lot of in a lot of Africa itself, you know, life isn't easy for people. People are struggling. They're hungry. Um, there's a lot of poverty. But if if we can see the value in keeping these animals alive and the employment that it brings, then you know people will protect them. Um, and and the engagement has lots of different levels, which we'll go into. But I, I think for me, the, I think the main thing is education and, and bringing awareness of of why it's so important to protect these animals and and the benefits of doing so. And and uh, yeah, that's the other thing. Sorry, it's the community side isn't a quick fix. You know you hear of guys going into areas and, you know, we'll get community on side. It's something that that has taken literally decades for the Travers family from starting from the 1950s. Um, there's There's been community work all the way through. And we're talking 60, 70 years of hard work, um, trust, uh, persistence, lots of different projects. And of course, some of them fail. You know, some some projects don't work. The whole time it, it's, it's a learning curve and it's about growing and maybe changing your approach or doing something slightly differently. Um, but it, it, it takes time. It takes a lot of time, I think. But it um, works. And no, it does work 100%. It's, it's what we're built on. And I think, I think it goes back to the, the old saying, um, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you, you, know, you feed him for a lifetime. And it, it really is that approach. So any, any projects that we take on, they have to be self-sufficient, um they have to be commercially viable so they need to be able to make money um and and they have to have longevity they have to there has to be a, a long-term goal you know you can't have a project that lasts for one week and and then it's finished it it has to have the potential to go on for years you know years and years um and that's really that's really the ideas that we take into all of these community projects that that we take on here Mm, I mean, it's completely fascinating how everything just kind of slots in together. Now, the other more specific community project that I'd love to hear more about is the women's support Mm. group that I know both of you are very passionate about. So could you maybe give us an overview of this? Um, So before I start, I just need to say that there's 98% of unemployment in this country. So there's a lot of people that just want working for a loaf of bread. So, so to have people in the boundary, in the community, they want to help us and they see a bigger future. And like on to help us, it's incredible. It is like uh, I every time I go to the community, I cry. And that's the thing because I take things for granted and to see them helping and they just want to live in a better place is just mind-blowing. So mm-hmm. with a women's support group, it's kind of that. So... Basically, in the normal local school, that is about 10 minutes from here, the teachers start noticing there was a big problem, that there was a lot of young girls missing school, at mm-hmm. least a week in a month. And that it's a, it seems like a week is not a lot, but it is a lot in the local uh, school. Yeah. And uh, the teachers approach moms the moms from the girls and said what is happening and they said yeah we don't know how to deal with this because our girls go through menstruation and they don't know what is happening to their body and they're so embarrassed that they prefer not to go to school so this mother, her name is my Matika. she's literally an angel 
she is. I would love you, Amy, to meet her because she's the most special woman I ever met in my whole wow. life. Um, and she decided to create this woman support group and start to do this sanitary packs. And this was a small project in the beginning. Mm. So each sanitary pack had two underwear, mm. two reusable sanitary pads, a soap and towels. And she started and she was able to provide some sanitary packs to the girls. When the volunteer program heard about this project, mm. of course, the first thing we wanted to do to this women and help so when we arrived here in 2018, we were able to provide every girl in the school with a sanitary pack. And because this project grew so big, we now are expanding. We know the women support group is expanding because they they know that there's need in other schools. Yeah. Um. So the volunteers, through the help of volunteers, they um, managed to get a container where they have their sewing machines and all their materials inside. Mm. And now they're helping other schools in um, Wedza district, which is amazing. If you think like, they're not earning any money. We're doing this poorly because they want the folks to be educated. Well, you know, it's great to hear. And it's obviously another barrier for us in the Western world that we might not be aware of. Um, yeah, and, and girls just can't get this full education because of it. So what a great pe- what a great project. And it sounds like the people involved are, as you say, complete, complete angels. Now, one of the things that you both mentioned to me as well, and this is a major project that you're involved with, is that you are currently getting um, accommodation for the local children. And this leads me on to the next thing. Sam, what shocked me was your description of what you found when you first visited their accommodation that these school children were were staying in at at night near the school. And I use the term accommodation very, very lightly. And I think everyone listening at home will will realise why in a second. So yes, could you maybe give us a better insight into this project and and why it's so crucial? Yeah, yeah, it was was quite a shock. Again, Vera mentioned that the, the about the women's support group and the girls not having access to sanitary wear being a shock. Um, but this, this also for me was, was a shock. Um, I actually stumbled across the accommodation. I remember seeing, I was driving on the road just outside of Imiri, Um And I, I saw this, uh, I, I always struggle to find the words of what to call it. Um, more of a shack than anything. Um, like a, a small brick outhouse with some corrugated iron sheets on top. Um, and there's there were seven seven doors, um, and each room was maybe three meters squared, I would say. Um, and and I saw some children there at the time, and I just went to them and, and started speaking to them. And it turns out that within those seven rooms, there was something like forty five children um, from the ages of thirteen up to eighteen. Um, and 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 the reason, and you know, I couldn't get my head around why these children were there but the the reason is that they live you know their parents their family live so far away from school um sometimes 50 kilometers or more um, that they can't stay at home and travel to school so this 
this accommodation was kindly um, the, the person whose land it was kindly let them stay there, but you know it was it was really just quite horrific conditions. And if you think of a thirteen-year-old, um, a thirteen-year-old going to school, coming home, cooking for themselves, you know, washing their clothes, doing, I just I just can't myself, you know, I can't fathom that kind of um, that kind of life. So. So anyway, we, we, we saw this issue and we started to take volunteers there and started some fundraising slowly to try and improve what was already there. Um, and then Vera and I shared, um, we shared all of this with the Travers family and, and Judy Travers, who's really the matriarch of, mm. of Imeri. Um, and she really t- took hold of this project. Um, and it's a testament to her determination and the community work she's done is unbelievable. But um, but she took hold of this project and, and has raised a lot of money now. And we've we've actually started building accommodation at the school. Um, so the plan is to hopefully be able to house 50 kids, um, which would take all of them out of that previous accommodation. Um, so we've got two big shipping containers, which have actually arrived now. We've got the funding um, wow. for them to arrive. And we're going to put windows, doors in there, and then bunk beds, proper desks, um, some lighting, solar lights in there. Yeah. Um, the plan is then to build a nice outdoor kitchen and then like a, a living area and a toilet uh, facility. I mean, in the last place, they had one toilet for, for that 45 children. It was just it was just crazy. Um so, so that's a, a really. I mean, I'm really inspired by this by this project, um, and 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 yeah, it's just a, an in, incredible thing to be a part of because, you know, with, with the kids can get a good night's sleep. It's just going to have such a huge knock-on effect to their whole school life. Um, similar idea to the sanitary stuff, um, but it's just going to be able, you know, give them an education and 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 hopefully for for a better future. So it's. It's a really exciting project to be a part of, and and you know hopefully we'll see a huge difference in in those children, um, and that that longevity part of it as well. So the idea is there when the kids graduate or they leave school, then that will open up a new space for for the next generation of kids. Um, so so that's that longevity part tying in as well. Um, the other thing that we want to teach the kids is. We want to build like a, a veggie garden that they will learn how to be sustainable. They need to know like to clean their own space, like be responsible for their own stuff. Um, and we actually have a time frame to do all of this before um, school starts again. So I don't know if I mentioned to you when I'm when I met you the first time, but we received this horrible news that the the place where they were, the, the shacks, or Shack, yeah. shacks or whatever you call it, they were destroyed. Someone went to steal the roofs. They want to steal the things that were inside. So if school starts, because it stopped because of coronavirus, if the school starts, kids don't have anywhere to stay. No. Oh, gosh, no, you didn't tell me that. It's just another another layer for these children to uh, to overcome. Oh, gosh. Mm. Yeah, it's terrible. It really, really is. And I can't think of a better project than uh, giving them proper accommodation. I'll really look forward to uh, to seeing that progress. And so moving on to your anti-poaching setup and unit, I think I'm right in saying that this is made up completely yeah. of the local people as opposed to 
getting specialists in for example yeah um i think i think in a, in a lot of um conservancies there's there's a bit of an idea that you need you know you, you need the highest fence possible with the most electric strands keep you know keep everyone out um that kind of approach but with us here on Imeri, the community are like a like a twelfth man in the anti poaching strategy. So, um, to give you an example, there was um, we weren't here at the time. This is one of Riley's stories, mm. but um, where he told us that the the fence uh, went down, um, either termites or something. The fence had fallen mm. down, and an impala actually went outside into you know community farmland, and and the guys called Riley to tell him that there's an impala outside and to help him put it back in you know when when there's such hardship and such poverty the easy thing to do is to to kill this impala and you know for food for your family but but these guys because of of that holistic approach they understand the value of protecting and and work together uh, to protect the wildlife um and then when it comes to the the anti-poaching side all the anti-poaching scouts yeah. on Imeri, they're all from local community. So whenever whenever there's a um, selection day, so when there's whenever there's a selection day, it's only ever local guys. So the guys will come from community yeah. and, you know, many of them will have zero anti-poaching experience. Um, but if, if they show, you know, if they show a glimmer of, of expertise or, or an affinity for anti-poaching and an interest in in wildlife then they'll go through training on Imeri and then potentially Vic Falls but all their training will be provided and then they're looking after the wildlife within their community so it's it's that approach really does make a huge difference I think. Well it's completely great to hear and actually how many people do you employ yeah. at Imeri? I think I'm right in saying it's a fairly big number. Yeah. 450. Wow. And the thing, the thing that really, I don't know, blows my mind, it's, it's 450 people, but then think about how many dependents are coming from that one income. So if you, if you look at the, um, the umbrella effect of, of that, that one person that's employed, there could be, I, I think it's an average of seven people relying on, on that one person. I read, I read a figure somewhere, but you know, you've got kids, um, generally two or three kids, then there's the parents, um, potentially grandparents, wife cousins it's the 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 effect that this small conservancy is having on on this this you could even say the district of Wedza is huge it really is massive and and obviously I could spend all day talking about just one topic of Imeri but I would like to get into the tourism part of Imeri so could you tell us a little bit about that yeah um 100 so the I'll touch on the on the lodge um Vera and I aren't um, involved in the lodge, but the lodge do some fantastic work. They do day trips, um, like game yeah. drives. So go go and see the piranhas or the wildlife mm-hmm. on Imeri. Um, and they also do overnight stays. Um, but one one of their projects, which I, I just love, is I think I was talking to Riley about it. And I think total, they've had around 25,000 school children on free game drives. So these are children from from CBDs, whether it's Harare or Marandera or whichever mm-hmm. cities, and they come out for the day, do a free game drive, um, and the guys just, you know, gain an appreciation for wildlife. Some some of the children could live in Zimbabwe their whole life and never see an impala, a zebra, a giraffe, whatever it is, um, they may never get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So 
So the lodge does some fantastic, incredible work on a, a children level um, and all the way through to the higher end game drive tourism. Um, then in terms of, of what Vera and I do, so Vera and I run the volunteer program and then also the nature enthusiast course, uh, which is a, a new um, a new project that we've got going. Um, so first I'll talk about the volunteer program. So volunteers typically come anywhere from between one week to eight weeks stay. Um, so you can choose how long you come here for. And then the days are split up into three different activities. Um, and we generally, of course, every day is different, but we generally try to do one wildlife activity. So that could be going out, tracking the, I mean, tracking the rhinos, um, checking on their health, uh, helping with the research side. Um, then we have typically a maintenance activity. So whether that's helping to fix uh, fence lines or roads or um, building dams, whatever it may be. And then finally, the third one is the community aspect. Um, so that's going to the local schools, helping the children reading or um, women's support group, the local clinic. Um, there's a whole host of community activities we do. Um, but I think I think what makes our project unique um, in the volunteer world is the um uh, exclusivity it's a real personal experience we only take 12 volunteers at each site at a time um so you know all the staff know everyone's name everyone's digging in together um and and the the second part is that once once people come to volunteer they really leave with a sense of understanding the problems faced by um by trying to run a conservancy anywhere in the world, but in Africa and Zimbabwe in general. And um, so the challenges that we face and our volunteers are on the ground and they're, they're getting stuck in. There's no throwaway activities like we'll keep you busy for half an hour. There's yeah. everything we do has a meaning and a purpose and, yeah. and an end goal. Um, yeah. And there's always progression there. Mm-hmm. I think, I think for me, the problem with the, the high end tourism is, um, you know, you can fly into an area you can go to a fantastic lodge, you can see all the fantastic animals and you leave you leave Africa or whichever country thinking, ah, oh, it's it's fantastic. There's no problems. It's it's the most beautiful place on the planet. There's no problem. There are problems in, in conservation. There are big problems. And and the volunteer program addresses those and people leave, I think, different people. They 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 come with a certain idea and they leave with a completely different mindset. And, and that feeling that they have achieved something and they have helped, they really have made a difference. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the volunteer side. And, and I think it's a very unique program and it, it's a very special program with unique opportunities as well. Yeah. We have a lot of fun on, on, on the program. Yes. Um, sorry, I've spoken about that quite a lot, but I'll, I'll then move on to our Nature Enthusiast course, which yeah. is a, a new, uh, new project that Vera and I designed. Um, so it's a six-week course, and it's designed to to give people a an overview of, of African wildlife and, and conservation. Mm. So we we teach everything from um, astronomy to botany to bird life to animal behaviour, geology, um, insects. It's a whole a whole broad spectrum of of wildlife. And unfortunately, due to this whole Corona thing, we had to cut our second one. Yeah. short um but those guys will be coming back but it's again it's education and and one of the big parts of of that nature enthusiast course is 
us taking the students into local schools and teaching them about conservation, the importance of protecting these animals um, and how they can make a difference. Because, you know, with such high unemployment on the schools on the boundaries, Emiri is a huge employer. So there's no reason why they can't aspire to be to be a guide or to to work at, at one of the lodges um, or antipodes. Yeah, it's it's all there. So it's a huge drive on education yeah. with that course. Yeah, the course we at each course we um, bring a local person either that is working with us or outside for free, and we do the course for them. Yeah. Mm. And the local people are they receptive to the ecotourism side of things at Imeri? Obviously, there's quite a big clash of socioeconomic backgrounds, perhaps, um, or, or just different cultures. So, so yeah, how how does that how how is that yeah. relationship? No, I think I think that's again a, a unique um, part of our project. We our volunteers get stuck in with community at all different levels, um, and there really is no segregation anymore. You know, sometimes when you first start a project and you go in, there's a bit of a you know, you, everyone's feeling each other out and you're trying to work out um, how to integrate. But our volunteers just they just integrate so, so perfectly. Awesome. You know, it's, it's, it really is a joy to see all these different ages and, and cultures and backgrounds all just merging for the same the same goal, um, is. which is which is so refreshing, I think. And they normally it's when so we give them a feedback form that they fill um, after they stay and it's really interesting that I would say around 80% of our, our volunteers they say we came to Imiri for yeah. the wildlife and we love the wildlife but the community was something that actually like, you left really, with that yeah. you know that sense no. of community yeah. Yeah. and it's really interesting you see people like from all cultures and everything and like they arrive one yeah. person and they leave another yeah. Oh, there must be tears when, when everyone goes. <laughs> there are, and it's either from the volunteers themselves or from Vera <laughs> <laughs> saying goodbye. I'm actually, no, no, it is like, I'm not even going to enter that. Like, I cry a lot yeah. when they leave, and sometimes I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah, no, that, and, and the nice thing is we've, We've almost created a, a bit of a community. You know, we've got we've got our volunteer groups where volunteers stay in contact, and everyone's there for the same the same thing. Yeah, we've got a lot of repeat volunteers as well, which yeah. is so rewarding. When somebody comes back, you know that you know that the project, uh, you know, yeah. a success. So, well, I'm not surprised they come back. I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> Now, my next question, and I'll ask both of you this, is Is there a moment that really stands out to you um, as a moment of, of conservation where the, kind, the pennies dropped, as it were, and you've gone, wow, okay, we, we really did something spectacular. Oh, there's, just, there's just so many. I think, I think for me, it's very tricky to beat the birth of a rhino. Yeah. Um, I've, I've never been lucky enough to see the birth. I think that would be next level. But I mean, just to, to all the, all the work that I Mary and and you know myself, Vera, all the all the anti poaching guys, everyone involved here. We we have little goals every day and every month, but the the ultimate goal is to breed rhino and and keep this incredible species alive. Um, so when when you get a new when you get a newborn calf, that is just 
the epitome of joy. It's it's right. it's just a, a I don't know. It's an out of body experience to watch one of these little guys roaming around or, or jumping or playing with mom. Um, no, it, it was in the volunteers yeah. feel like in August when we had that um, birth, the black rhino yeah. birth. We all went to up the rock. We took four um, four bottles of champagne. <laughs> we got there was tears, there was laughing, there was music. Everyone was so happy. And these volunteers were with us for a week. They just realized exactly what is like this goal, of this the project itself. And they, everyone yeah. was so happy. It was just an amazing mm-hmm. moment with the sunset. Was literally Lion King type of mm-hmm. thing with mm-hmm. rhino. Yeah. Oh well, that really, really sums it up, doesn't it? And it doesn't take a genius to understand mm-hmm. how passionate you both are about Imeri and and the passion that Imeri has to protect and look after the wildlife and everyone that is involved um, as well. And so what's the future for Imeri? It's obviously an ever-evolving conservancy, I suppose. Um, there's, there's quite a few exciting um, projects coming up. So, you know, in terms of the community you've, you've just touched on, there's the boys' accommodation, um, the also feeding the feeding programme. So we're, we're hoping, our goal is to be able to provide a meal to every single child every day at, at that school. Um which is, which is a big goal, but I think it's achievable and we're, we're on the right track there. So so that will make a huge yeah. difference to the education side as well. Um, in, terms yeah. of the, in terms of the conservancy, um, a really exciting one, we're hoping to introduce predators um, at some point. So mm-hmm. it's everything's, I won't, I won't divulge too much, but everything's in the yeah. pipeline. Um, but we're hoping to introduce predators, which will just add a, a whole new element to our conservation. Um, yeah. um, and, and, and it will change the whole face of this conservancy. Bringing a, bringing a predator in is just, it's a game changer for, for conservation. All the other species that will um, benefit from that as well. And management. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a huge, it's just a huge side um, and, and would tie in very nicely to the conservation strategy that we've got. Yeah. So, so that that's a really exciting one, um, yeah. and 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 yeah, the ultimate release of rhinos. You know, we our rhinos from that from that tragic incident in two thousand and seven. We've now got you know new generations of calves coming through, and there will be a point in maybe I don't know maybe three to five years where we'll be we should be able to release them, um, which is the dream. You know, that's that's what it's all about. So. So for me, that that's the most exciting thing to to look forward to would be the release of, of an Emiri rhino back into a, a wilderness area. Um, yeah. Well, it's very very exciting. And for everyone who's listening, how can we help you to ensure that rhinos are here for for future generations? Yeah, um, I think the best the best way to support. Um, Imeri is to actually come and see, you know, come and, and, and be a volunteer for whether it's a week or eight weeks, whatever, whatever you want to do, um, or join one of our, our wildlife courses. That for me, that's the best way because you, you're supporting, you're on the ground, you're helping, um, and, and, and you can see the difference and go and spread the word about rhino conservation and conservation in general. Um, obviously if, if you're, if you can't get out here to see it for yourself, then we do have, 
um, some fundraising. And we're, we're going to have a link um, that I'll send to you, Amy, when once it's out. Um, because, yeah. you know, tourism is our is our main um, source of income. So now with this whole coronavirus, conservancies all over the world are struggling. But it's, it, it's of course, hit us hard. Um, but we're, I'll, I'll share a link with you, Amy, once we've, once we've got one up um, for donations. And that will go straight towards the running of, of the conservancy and just, just keeping everything ticking over until hopefully tourism returns and we can get back to a, a new normality, whatever that will be. Yeah. We don't want to stop doing what we're doing because of this pandemic. We want to continue to uh, have our anti-poaching unit running. We co- want to continue to have a high standard of everything, like community, anti-poaching, lodges, volunteers. So basically, yeah, we need support. And hopefully this coronavirus is going to be end soon and we will have volunteers. Yeah, yeah but we've got to keep growing. Well, guys, it goes without saying, it was a complete pleasure to chat with you today. For everyone who is now keen to look at the photos of baby rhinos and follow the work of the incredible team at Imiri, just head over to This Wildlife social media pages. You'll find all of the links to Imiri on there. So lastly... Vera, Sam, I'd just like to say a huge thank you for your time and the endless passion that you've shown us today. I really do wish everyone at Imiri all the best for the future and I cannot wait to see the successes that you you have. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure to share, share a little bit of what we do here. You've listened to another episode of this Wildlife Podcast. Just a reminder that our competition to win a trail camera is still open, but it does close on the 16th of September. For full details about how to enter, listen to the end of last week's episode with Dr. Amy Dickman. But in short, head over to iTunes, leave us a quick review, and then we will randomly choose a name and then we will ship your brand new trail camera out to you. What a fabulous couple of weeks it's been for the podcast. Our guests have been completely amazing, as usual. We are super busy recording more episodes, and honestly, I can't wait to release those to you. But listen up. I could not believe my eyes, and nor could David, who is our prime podcast researcher, when we saw that we are now listened to in over 50 countries. Wow, guys, it's amazing. And for anyone new around here, welcome to the Wildlife family. We are delighted to have you here. And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.